Matthew chapter 20. We're going to be starting in verse 17. So join with me as I read God's word. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside. And on the way, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. And they will condemn him to death. And deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. Verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked for him for something. He said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, We are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those to whom has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So today's passage begins with Jesus foretelling the events that would unfold in Jerusalem his betrayal condemnation, and crucifixion. Now, as we examine this prediction, we'll see the contrast between God's kingdom and the world's priorities. Then, we will end on how Jesus, the Son of Man, reveals how his life will serve as a ransom for the many. As we dive deeper into this passage, I really want you to ask yourself, what does it mean to be great. Let's go back to verse 17. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. So Jesus and the disciples are traveling to Jerusalem, and just Jesus decides it's best to, to remind them of what is awaiting him. It's clear that Jesus knew what was going to happen to him. Up to this point in Matthew's gospel, he's made this prediction multiple times. Not only that, but in the verses that I just read, He gives an incredible amount of detail. So I would like to, first of all, spend a little bit of time unpacking these verses and, Lord willing, show why is it here? Why is it in this part of Matthew's gospel? So the first part of Jesus' prediction contains a punishment he will receive 
From who? The chief priests and scribes. Now, by themselves, these terms, these labels have different meanings, but the fact that they're together really shows his readers that this is coming from the top. This is coming from the teachers of the law. Now, there are two reasons why this is very ironic. It's ironic because, one, his own very nation that he came to save is condemning him to death. Two, these were teachers of the law. They should have known that he was the Messiah. I mean, it's fair to say that was their job, to recognize the Messiah. Christian, you claim that Jesus was the Messiah that God promised long ago to deliver the Israelites. So why is he condemned to death by his own people? Let's continue to the second part of Jesus' prediction. We'll come back to that question. He tells his disciples that the chief priests and scribes will deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. Now, granted, Jesus does not specify which Gentiles, but there's no doubt that he had the Romans in mind. According to Jesus, the Romans will do these things to him. Now, to be mocked and flogged were typical practices for someone who was condemned to death by crucifixion. Floggings were were brutal. The person being flogged would be stripped of their clothing, then restrained to a wooden post so that they wouldn't move. A trained Roman soldier will then take a whip that was uh, made of leather strips, sometimes embedded with sharp objects like bone or even metal. And then that Roman soldier would take that whip and repeatedly strike the criminal's back. This often tore their skin open. The wounds and trauma from it would usually lead to shock or other physical complications. After a flogging, understandably, that person was in a pitiable state. Sometimes they would be in that state waiting their next punishment. But because of its brutal nature, it was enough. It was enough for most crimes. Now, in Jesus' case this mocking and flogging was just an appetizer, a taste to what really awaited him, his crucifixion. Now, for those of you who may not know or are unfamiliar, a crucifixion was a method of execution in which a person was nailed to a, a wooden cross through each of their hands and their feet. Now, as they hung by the nails, the weight of the body would cause such an immense amount of pain that it would put this pressure on their nerves and bones. And they were just left up there. This caused a person to die by a combination of exhaustion and and suffocation. This was a slow and agonizing death that lasted hours or even days. But in addition to this physical pain, There was this aspect of humiliation. This was public for everybody to see. This was so humiliating that 
Roman citizens were generally exempt from such a death. This type of execution was really only reserved for criminals, slaves, lowlifes. Well, Christian, you claim that Jesus was a great and powerful king. King of kings, Lord of lords. But here he is. Why is he dying in such a humiliating way? This brings us to the final part of his prediction. He tells his disciples that after all of this, he will be raised on the third day. Now, I want us to pay attention to the, to the wording of this verse. He tells his disciples that he will be raised, implying that someone will raise him. It is here that we, are, we clearly see the actor, another actor involved in this prediction, God the Father. Jesus will be raised from the dead by God the Father. Now, this last part is more than Jesus just telling what's going to happen to him. In the context of his death and suffering, this resurrection really serves to show the Father's approval of these events. Now, there's a lot that we can pull out of this. But this morning, I really want us to focus on how this fits into the context of today's passage. It wasn't as if God the Father was absent or dropped the ball during any of this. No, in fact, it was the Father's will. This was the path set by the Father for Jesus to walk down. Why would the Savior of the Jews be condemned by the Jews? Because it was the Father's will. Why would the King of Kings die a slave's death? Because it was the Father's will. This was the cup that Jesus would have to drink from. This was the seat reserved for him alone. Why do I highlight all this? Why do I go into such detail? Because it really serves to contrast the priorities between God's kingdoms and man's. How different, how foreign, and even how upside down they are to each other. That's why Matthew arranges arranges Jesus' prediction right before the disciples' request. He really wants his readers to see that these two sections are connected. They're not just separate things. It was the Father's will. Let's look at verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. He said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. Well, he said to them, you will drink my cup. But to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant. 
at the two brothers. So James and John and their mother approach Jesus with, with this request. She asks him, look at my wonderful darling sons. Jesus, won't you sit them, one at your right and one at your left hand? Now, what does that phrase mean? In the Jewish custom, the place of highest honor was at the center of the company. Closely followed by that was at the right hand and at your left hand. Now, granted, the disciples were not asking for a better seat than Jesus, but they were asking for a better seat than their fellow disciples. It's such an odd request. I mean, even now, when you read it, maybe looking at it an hour in your devotion, you're just like, oh, those disciples. I think more so, what makes it odd is given the timing of it. I mean, Jesus literally just said, guys, we're about to go to Jerusalem, and this is what's going to happen to me. That's great, Jesus. But, hey, while you're doing that, can you make sure that we, we get our spots in line? That is precisely what happens when you're only concerned about yourself. You're blinded to others. Now, Of course, we would disapprove of their selfishness and their requests, but there's some faith, there's some sprinkling in the request. I mean, their mother kneeled before Jesus before she made the request. They acknowledged he had the power to do it. If anybody could do it, it was Jesus. But for all of their confidence in Jesus' authority, they did not know what they were asking for. They were clearly likening Jesus' kingdom to their own conception of what a kingdom should be. They thought Jesus would establish a great and powerful rule like that of the Romans, or maybe, maybe even their Jewish ancestors. However, even asking Jesus for a place of honor in his kingdom shows how much they misunderstand it. It is impossible and even paradoxical to seek personal greatness in this kingdom. I mean, let's be honest. Let's think about it. Jesus did not have an army. What did he have? Unreliable, selfish disciples. Instead of wealth and riches, he was poor. Instead of respect and honor from the great teachers, they constantly rejected him. They constantly tested him. Instead of great palaces filled with noblemen, he was in the homes of ordinary people, healing their sick. The path to Jesus' kingdom meant lowliness. It meant sacrifice. It meant rejection from this world's kingdom. What type of person would ask or even desire to be in an honorable place like this. What kind of person would even ask that? More importantly, what kind of person would even want to do such a thing? Why would you lower yourself? Why would you intentionally want to be rejected? Jesus continues. He he questions the brother's commitment to sit at his right and left hand. He says... Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? 
although there is no direct explanation of what the cup means in these verses, the cup was often used as a metaphor for an individual's fate, for somebody's destiny. To drink the cup meant submitting to God the Father's will for your life. You can see this clearly when Jesus prays to the Father in the garden. He says, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. At the same time, we learn from elsewhere in Scripture that when Jesus submits, and when he's submitting to the Father's will, this includes him drinking God's wrath. In the Old Testament, the cup was often used to symbolize God's wrath, like in Isaiah 51. In Isaiah 51, Jerusalem is personified as a woman who will drink the cup of God's wrath. I'll read it for you. The Lord says to Jerusalem, wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, stand up, O Jerusalem. You who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath who have drunk to the dregs of the bowl the cup of staggering. Psalm 75, For not from the east or from the west, and not from the wilderness, comes lifting up. But it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup, foaming with wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, And all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Jesus knew this. Jesus knew this. Jesus knew this was the cup prepared by the Father. Nevertheless, he still submitted to the Father's will. He still submitted to drain the cup of wrath to the dregs. Drinking the cup, therefore, symbolizes submitting to the Father's will, even if that meant suffering, even death. In response to this question, are you able to drink from the cup that I am to drink? How do James and John answer? Without any hesitation. Yeah, sure. We're able. Let's do it. I'm game. Now, it's clear we just talked about what the cup meant for Jesus. But what does this mean and how does this relate to James and John? Especially because Jesus tells them, you will drink my cup. But to sit at my right hand and my left is not mine to grant. But it is for those whom it has been prepared by my Father. Now, here, Jesus did not imply that James and John would also drink God's wrath. No, that cup is reserved for Christ alone. Instead, what Jesus was highlighting, that in a sense, his disciples, his followers, would participate in the same suffering as he did. In other words, the disciples will not escape suffering when they drink their own cup prepared by the Father. As his disciples will soon learn, The route to glory, the route to glory in God's kingdom is radically different than the route to glory 
and man's kingdom. As we see, their request to sit at his right and left hand was not well received by the other disciples. Verse 24 tells us that the other disciples became indignant. Now, it begs the question, were they angry that James and John would ask such a question? Because they were just so much, so much more virtuous than them? Or were they angry that James and John got the chance to ask first? I believe, I believe it's the latter. Remember, these are the same disciples, according to Matthew 18, who argued about who would be the greatest in the kingdom. Not only that, in in last week's verse, uh, a passage that Brett covered, they were each promised a throne, each of them, a throne, to judge the 12 tribes. Not only that, they would receive a hundredfold back what they lost. Remember what Peter said, Lord, we followed you. What is our reward? Jesus told him, you will receive receive a hundredfold back of what you lost. In that same verse, he also tells them that they would inherit eternal life. These were the promises to his disciples. Yet, their indignation towards the brother's request really shows us how discontent they were with Jesus' promises. Ultimately, it also shows their sinful ambitions. As a sidebar, I I really think this verse just shows Jesus' patience. On one hand, he has these two brothers who are confused about what glory means. They're ignorant about it. And on the other hand, the rest of his disciples, you have, they're also ignorant, but they're jealous. And Jesus is so patient towards them. So what does Jesus say to all this? Let's look at verse 25. So Jesus calls them all together to him, and he says, You know, you know, that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus gathers all his disciples together and he reminds them. He says, you know these things. The Gentiles lorded over them. The Gentile rulers exercise their authority in an oppressive way. You know these things. They did what was needed for personal gain, even at the expense of others. This was how they measured greatness. If you wanted to be great, you used your authority, your position of power, to really further your own agenda, your own desires. This was true back then, as it is today. You don't have to go far to see that. Ruling, ruling, not serving, is the best thing you could strive for. 
I mean, that's what you should strive for. If you're not striving for that, if you're not striving for greatness, what are you doing with your life? The disciples, again, knew, knew these things. They saw it in action from the Romans, even from some of their corrupt Jewish leaders. Perhaps they presumed Jesus' kingdom would function the same way. I mean, why else would James and John try to reserve their most honorable seats next to Jesus? I've got to get in line. I've got to reserve my spot. They saw that opportunity, and they decided to take it. If that were to happen today, the world would say, man, those guys are go-getters. Get your bag, man. Do it. Do what you got to do. But as we know, hopefully, the disciples could not be any further from the truth. Jesus tells them, it shall not be so among you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Now, a little bit about servant and slave, those terminologies. A servant was often a hired worker, while a slave was forced into labor. These were the two lowest positions in this culture, especially in a culture that celebrated greatness. No one would happily choose to become a slave or a servant. No one would choose that. Both had no rights, no freedom, no authority, no autonomy over their lives. They were at the mercy of their master. But Jesus teaches that if you want to be great in God's kingdom, you must lower yourself like a servant. You must lower yourself like a slave. Jesus, at this point, has said some pretty radical things. And this is easily among the top. Now, this wasn't something that Jesus just taught, but he also modeled. Look again at verse 28. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Here is the climax of Jesus' teaching on power, authority, and greatness. He emphasizes that his purpose was not to be served in a conventional sense, but to serve others selflessly. Who could argue with Jesus? They saw how he tirelessly healed the sick, fed thousands, performed other miracles that benefited those around him. But to give his life as a ransom for many? To us, who just covered verses 17 and 19, this is clearly a connection to those verses. But this phrase gives us more detail about his prediction. He tells them that he will give his life. Jesus did not come to preserve his life here on earth. He did not come for his own personal benefit. In fact, Jesus' life can be characterized by how much he gave it up to others. 
But then we're told that his life, the giving of his life, would be a ransom for many. The term ransom implies a payment made to secure the release of something or someone. In the Old Testament, a ransom is often associated with redemption or deliverance through some form of payment. Psalm 49 says, excuse me, Psalm 49 says, Truly no man can ransom another or give God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice. So Jesus' life will be a form of payment for the many. The question now becomes, a payment for what? His sacrifice is intended to serve as an atonement to redeem humanity from sin. His sacrifice, his life, his giving of life, his life, is intended to serve as an atonement to redeem humanity from sin. Since the fall, back in Genesis 3, humanity was plunged into sin and in its bondage. It, sin, was our master. Sin was our master, and we became its slave. It was what we craved, we desired, and we couldn't help it. It was our nature. And God, being a holy God, cannot dwell with sin nor tolerate sin. All sin will and must be judged because he is a holy God. So here is a holy God before sinful humanity. That sinful humanity is indebted to this holy God for all of its sin. And this sinful humanity had nothing to pay that debt. Nothing. But out of love, out of love, the Father sent His only begotten Son. Out of love, the Father sent His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Praise God. Praise God that Christ gave his life as a ransom for many. Praise God that Christ drank the cup that we deserve. The debt has been paid. Christ drank the cup. Christ submitted to the Father's will. And if you believe in him, you are free. You are released from your old master. You are no longer a slave of sin, but a slave to righteousness. My friend, if you do not know Jesus, you are still a slave to sin. And I don't have any joy in saying that. I say that to tell you the truth. If you do not have faith in Christ, you have no righteousness before God. You have nothing to pay that debt. 
But out of love, Christ sent you his son to pay the debt that you owe him. It's there. It's a gift. It's a free gift. If you reject it, you have nobody to blame but yourself. Your sins that you owe God be wiped away. Be white as snow. You will no longer be a slave, but a child of God. This is not only to those of you who do not have faith in Christ here, but to you, Christian. Remind yourself that. The old account was settled long ago. The debt has been paid. The sin that you committed this morning, yesterday, the argument that you got with your spouse in the car earlier, paid. Paid by the Son. What a Savior. What a Savior. Jesus, the King of Kings, lowered himself and laid down his life. Not for his friends. Not for people who are good. But like Paul teaches, Christ died for us while we were still yet sinners. The Holy One, tortured, mocked, and crucified on a cross like a criminal. For who? For criminals. Where is room for boasting? Where is room for self-exaltation? When we worship a Savior like this, why do we, as Christians, where do we, where do we think that we can strive for a golden crown when the Savior that we worship had a crown of thorns? By now, I hope you see the differences between the priorities of God's kingdom and what man is concerned with. Let me ask you, do you find yourself relating to the disciples? Grumbling with what God has already promised you because it's not enough? Maybe, maybe even getting jealous when you see somebody else get more recognition or more rewards? Is your desire for greatness rooted only in this world? My brothers and sisters, it shall not be so among you. Last week, Brett showed us the differences between God's and man's kingdom. He said, and I quote, Kingdom-minded people are focused on God's grace, not their rewards. Focused on God's grace, not their rewards. I really want to build on that. I thought that was really good. Kingdom-minded people are focused on serving others rather than exalting themselves. Kingdom-minded people are focused on serving others rather than exalting themselves. Paul tells the saints in in Philippi that although Christ was the very nature of God, he did not consider his equality with God as something to be used to his own advantage. 
equal with God, Christ did not consider that equality something used to his own advantage. Instead, Jesus Jesus made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Saints, my challenge to you this morning is similar to Paul's charge to the saints in Philippi. If you, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete and conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. You, you who desire greatness, you want to be great in this world, have the mind of Christ. And do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Do not look, do not only look to your interests, but to the interests of others. Have the mind of Christ. Conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. There's a lot. There's a lot here. There's a lot of questions that I can ask. But I want to keep it simple. What is the posture of your heart? What is the posture of your heart? Be honest. God knows your heart. Do you desire to serve others? Do you genuinely desire to serve others? Because here's the thing. I guarantee you, you desire to be great. Somebody asks you, you want to be a great man? You want to live a great life? Yeah, absolutely. But here's the thing. What is your definition of greatness? Is your definition of greatness to exalt yourself or to serve others? Again, it shall not be so among you. Why? Not because I'm up here and and I have a mic and I'm saying it. But because the Son of Man, the Son of Man, Back to Daniel 7, the great one, the promised one. The son of man, what did he do? He came not to be served, but to what? To serve. To give his life as a ransom for many. Gary, uh, last week, said something right before he led us in worship. Talked about how Christians always talk about this upside-down kingdom But in reality, it's not upside down. It's how things were supposed to be. It was not until sin entered into the world that God told Eve, your desire is to rule over your husband. 
Later on, a brother killing his own brother. Why? Out of jealousy. Even further along, a great king who we see using his own authority to orchestrate the death of a woman's husband. Why? Because he wanted her. He wanted her for himself. Why do I bring all this up? Because when we consider the needs of others more important than our own, when we value the needs of others, we are showing the world what God's kingdom is like. We are reflecting in a small way who our Savior is. Again, what is the posture of your heart? Examine yourself. Let's pray. Oh. Heavenly Father, we are before your word and your word is challenging because it shows us what, what we are, what we desire. Father, you know our hearts. You know that behind closed doors, We desire to exalt ourselves. We're so wrapped up in our own interests and our own concerns that we become blind to the needs of others. God, would you joyfully make us into servants? God, you know that all of us need to be humbled more. We have too much pride in our hearts. Help us see our Savior knowing that His life has redeemed us. Help us to die to our old selves. Help us to be salt and light to a dying world. Father, would you do this? Not for ourselves, but for your glory and for your kingdom. Lord, would you help us this day to drink the cup that you've prepared for us. To count all sufferings and trials with joy, knowing that it makes our faith stronger, more dependent on our Savior. We give all glory to you, Father, and to your Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Amen.